If you are looking for a mobile wallet to hold and access your crypto, you need to go to Argent.xyz and download their smart contract wallet app right onto your Android or iOS device. Argent is the most secure way to hold money on your device while still being able to access DeFi services that we all know and love on Ethereum. Through Argent, you have one tap access to the beloved DeFi apps like Compound, Uniswap, Aave, and you can even invest directly into some yield generating assets right from your Argent wallet. Crucial to maintaining security over your assets is Argent's Guardian service, which allows you to use a friend to make sure that you can always restore access to your funds in case you were to ever lose your phone or for your device to break. You can also use a local hardware wallet to ensure that you can always restore access to your funds yourself. One of Argent's newest features is their ability to route trades through 10 decentralized exchanges, including Uniswap and Kyber, to make sure that you are always getting the best trade on your assets. Similarly, pushing the fold on what we can do in Ethereum and DeFi, Argent has replicated some of the legacy financial services that you would expect from your bank, but put it directly into the hands of the user, such as send limits and whitelisted accounts, ensuring that if anyone were to be able to access your funds in your Argent wallet, they could only send up to a certain amount and only be able to send them to approved addresses, which is creating one of the most safe environments to hold your assets in, which is why people have put millions and millions of dollars in into the Argent wallet that they use on their device. In order to see the Argent wallet in action, go to argent.link slash bankless and download the Argent wallet on iOS or Android today. We're also brought to you by Monolith. Monolith is your cool new DeFi account, your DeFi savings account, your DeFi checking account. Except the cool thing about the Monolith DeFi account is that it gets software updates, right? You actually get to increase the usefulness of this over time. So here are some of the features. Monolith is a smart contract wallet with a lot of the features that you would expect if you've come to know DeFi and what it is, you can you can add money to it. You can put that money to work uh, in Compound and, and accessing yield. Uh, but you can and you can also swap through Uniswap. What was cool with Monolith is that they will send you a very sexy Monolith Visa card that connects to your smart Monolith smart contract wallet on Ethereum. So it's a really awesome tool to live a bankless life with a a, a savings account that gets software updates. So this is, this is something that you're never going to find out in the real world, but you can still do real world things with you know real money in, like buy your groceries. So that's just fantastic. Coming soon to Monolith, actually already here to Monolith, is now you can buy DAI and get it sent to your wallet directly, right? So it's also being an on-ramp. So you don't have to go through your centralized exchange like Coinbase or Gemini or wherever. You can just go straight from your bank account right into your Monolith checking account smart contract wallet. So check them out at monolith.xyz. Bankless Nation, welcome to another State of the Nation. This is number 25. David and I have already had a very full day, but it is an exciting day. This is the day that ETH2 launched. We are gonna talk about that. We're also going to talk about probably the best report we've ever read on Ether in this space. And we're bringing on the analysts who actually wrote it, Ryan Watkins and Wilson Withiam from Sorry Crypto. First, I want to ask you before we get to the guests, before we get to the agenda, David, 
How are you doing today, man? Are you a little tired? You had to wake up pretty darn early to see the launch. Yeah, I woke up at three in the morning because the uh, E2 <laughs> launched at four in the morning. But I went to, I was smart and I went to bed at literally 8 p.m. last night and somehow I managed wow. to make that work. So I'm actually just like a bundle of energy right now. Like today's the day. Like today's the day that ETH2 is here and, and you know, thank God it got out the door with all systems, all systems go. It's like all the blocks were green. Everything went out without a hiccup. And so, you know, today's just a good day. That was awesome. It was a lot of fun to live stream that. Guys, if this is your first State of the Nation, we do these every Tuesday. We stream them live on YouTube at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time. We drop that in uh, YouTube as well, but we also put it on the podcast so you can listen to it. And our goal here is to talk about what's happening right now. And right now, the story is all about ETH2. Mm -hmm. So today, we're going to be talking about this analyst report. It's called ETH2.0, the next evolution of the crypto economy written by the folks at Masari Crypto. We'll introduce them in just a moment. But I think for me, David, this was like the first analyst report that I've read where I'm like thumbs up on the whole thing. I mean, most analyst reports about Ethereum that have come out over the years have been like garbage, like miss, really wrong, miss, bad. wrong, uh -huh. like bad take, yep. Don't doesn't make sense. Yep. Uh, this one nailed it for me. I don't know. What's your take? Yeah. And th this one nailed it, not just on like the technical details, because like even that is to generating a report on the technical details is uh, a monumentous task in of itself. Not only because like understanding Ethereum 2.0 and the different phases to how to get there are, is like, that's a hard ask, but also it always changes at the same time. And so, uh, so the, the uh, Mazzari has done a really good job of making, producing a report that actually like, keeps up with all the changes. And in, in addition to that, there's also uh, just conversations of like the social contract and the political philosophy and, and kind of got pretty meta with about the philosophy of Ethereum and, and just the ethos of Ethereum, which I really, really enjoyed. And it's integral to understand what that is to, to understand Ethereum. And they did a really good job with that. Yeah, we are going to dig into it. Also, a few things that are new. Of course, our ETH2 live stream that we're just talking uh, about, David, that happened at 3.30 your time this morning. That is now archived on our YouTube. But mm -hmm. um, a lot of like a lot of folks tuned in for these live streams. So we had a live stream on Bankless. ETH Hub had a live stream as well. There's some the Reddit ETH staking community. And it felt like between all of those live streams, there were like 6,000. Yeah. Yeah. Plus mm -hmm. attendees, participants who yeah. witnessed the launch of ETH2 Genesis Live. Yeah, that is the largest single event, at least Ethereum event based on viewership that I've ever seen. Like I've never seen like six, five or 6,000 people all like watching the same thing. And that was just the people that were watching on YouTube, right? Like other people were watching it from like just watching their own nodes at home, right? And so like as far as events go with Ethereum, biggest event ever. It, it was super cool as well. So that is archived. If you guys want to check it out, we'll put it in the show notes. Also, our Balaji podcast came out on Monday. Man, that that was hot. Dude, I remember uh, recording that and I was doing it like, it's like after, it was like between 12 and one o'clock in the morning, my time. Yeah. And we just kept going mm -hmm. because the conversation was so inspiring mm -hmm. and so interesting. What, what was uh, your big takeaway from that? Yeah, the recording that was was a ton of fun. We actually had to record with Balaji uh, twice because like we <laughs> yeah. recorded about an hour and a half, except we still had so much left to go and he had a meeting to get to. And so he went to the meeting and then he came back and we recorded to, to finish it off. Uh, so, and I think I got this line from you, Ryan, uh, so I'll steal it. Um, uh, back in 2010, it was crazy to like consider Bitcoin 
as like a new money, right? And so like, even if you believed it, like speaking about it to your friends was like harebrained, it's a harebrained idea. And so like, but now Bitcoin's money. Back now Bitcoin is just like understood by the world. So what's the crazy harebrained thing in 2020? And Balaji has an answer to that question. It is, let's make a country. Let's make a nation. First, let's make a nation in the cloud. And then let's figure out how to make it real in real life. And so we had a two and a half hour, like epic conversation with Balaji about like, how are we going to go from just like a group of people who are interested in this project to like actual real land somewhere building a real country. So that's, I think that's like the, the new crazy topic of the decade that I think maybe in one decade from now, this will be a normal conversation. That's the teaser. And Balaji brings a lot of credibility to it because he tends to see these things about 10 years in advance. It's like he's from the future. Also, David, speaking about the future, tomorrow you've got a Masari event. Are, are you guys going to be talking about this report uh, as well, or what's that event about? Yeah, I think I, I think we'll, we'll we'll talk about this when uh, when the boys come on in a sec. But I think the gist is like uh, there's just so many different things that are new with Ethereum 2.0, and so Masari is throwing this event tomorrow, which I'm speaking at with uh, Cami Russo. Uh, and Mara Schmidt. Yes, Mara, Mara absolutely. Uh, She's on, fantastic. On Mizarra, she wrote the yeah. Ether Bonds paper. Yes, right. Yeah. That and so that's just going to yes. be a really fantastic conversation, like kind of trying to get a grasp on like, how does, how does new economics work in Ethereum 2.0? Really important conversation. Awesome, man. Okay. Going to introduce the guests in just a moment, but first I've got to ask you the question we always start with, David, what is the state of the nation right now? The state of the nation is launched. Past tense, past tense. Uh, because it already happened. It happened this morning. We are <laughs> launched, right? So Ethereum 2, it's it's launched. Like we don't, we, there's no double meaning here. This isn't that creative. Uh, the state of the nation is launched. And that is pretty exciting in and of itself, right? A lot of these sorts of things fail on launch. We've actually seen a number of, like one of the, the major test nets, mm -hmm. uh, just kind of the rocket died on the launch pad and right. tipped over and exploded, right? <laughs> um, but this time... For mainnet, mm -hmm. the rocket took off. It cleared the when atmosphere. It, when it mattered. We're on our way to the moon, I guess, that's, that's somewhere. Yeah, Destination unknown. We'll call it the moon. All right, awesome. State of the Nation has launched. Now we want to bring on our guests to talk about this epic report. How many pages is this? We're going to have to ask the guys when they come pages, on. 70-page yep. report. All of it is gold. We'll dive right into it. We want to introduce our guests Ryan Watkins, because there's two Ryan on the podcast, we're going to call him just Watkins. He's okay <laughs> with that. And also uh, Wilson with him. These are the brains, the analysts behind this epic Ethereum report. Gentlemen, are you with us? How are you doing today? Hey, what's going on, guys? Hey. Uh, doing well. Wilson, hey, guys. Welcome, welcome. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Excited to be here. It is Good great day. to have you. Well, we're going to dig into it. So first, we just want to say, like, nice job on the report. If you If you didn't hear our intro... We're big fans. Like you did a, a fantastic job. I'm just curious, how long did this take you to put together? Was this something that was like, like months in in progress, or you know, did you did you finish it on a on you know the weekend before? <laughs> yeah, well, we definitely finished it the weekend before. Okay, um, but but yeah, we've been we working on this for for probably about two months now. Uh, I guess originally we were working towards the kind of like November 16th-ish uh, launch date for the Beacon Chain. Uh, but then, you know, once I got pushed back, actually, you know, lucky enough, gave us some time to you know, put in a little bit with the report and, you know, end up taking about two months. So 
you know, by far the most research I've done on anything in crypto, just a ton of fun. It was perfect timing for the, for the BLSC audit to come in last minute to just give us that little extra time so we could bump it up from like a 30 page report. to. All right. So what Wilson's referring to here is he got an extension on his paper basically because (laughs) ETH2 was delayed a little bit in November. Some people thought it would come Thanksgiving weekend. And there was um, a kind of a, an audit that was sort of pending for some BLS crypto signatures. So you guys got a reprieve in a few more weeks to finish it up, right? Yeah, exactly. So when you nice. guys first started chewing on like producing this report, what were, what were some of the initial like motivations? Like why, apart from just like providing, making information available as like part of Mazari's business model, like what, what really specifically about an ETH2 report was really attractive for, for you guys in Mazari? Yeah. Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll start first. Um, I think what was what we really wanted to do with this report was you know, when we looked out on what has been written on E2.0 so far, we've seen really great technical deep dives. We've seen really great economic deep dives. Uh, but we really wanted to create a report that combined all of these different elements, as well as touched on some of the more like philosophical and historical elements of Theorem 2.0 that we think are like critical to understanding what is actually being built, why it's being built and where Ethereum is, is going. And to put that all in, in one report uh, is, is really what we were, were looking to do. Trying to put something together that really took away, there were a lot of misconceptions going into what ETH 2.0 can be. It's this major upgrade, really trying to break it down into a very simple, but in a descriptive uh, report as far as what's going on. So people have a good idea of what is happening now and what's to come and what are the implications for it. Um, so really covering all of our bases in a very easy to read and digest manner. So we're going to open up the report and talk about some graphics and, and components of it that we thought were particularly interesting. But um, before we do that, I, I want to ask about the decisions to include like political philosophy and like uh, social consensus and, and a social contract in, in, in a report, right? Because this is, this is not something that you will ever find in a, in a legacy report about a legacy equity market a company or whatever. Like there's no political philosophy of like Tesla or Amazon, right? And so this is something that I think you know legacy people or institutions quote unquote people that are trying to like peer in from the space from the outside in they might open up this report and be like why is there political philosophy here uh so so maybe like you guys could add some perspective as to why you thought it was important to add in like some of the social aspects and or social narratives around these blockchains yeah no it's funny because wilson and i were like literally just talking about this yesterday about the the differences between writing a report you know say at an investment bank and it's pretty much just very descriptive, very dry to the point, you know, what are the numbers, uh, et cetera. And you, know, you don't really need to dive that deep into what is the political ph- philosophy of Jeff Bezos to understand Amazon. But with blockchains, uh, it really is a different story because blockchains aren't just technology, they also are institutions. And they're institutions that are you know, encoded with different values uh, and were created for you know, different purposes. And we thought that like, it was really important uh, with this report, like if you really wanted to appreciate what Ethereum is and kind of like the underlying design principles for Ethereum 2.0, it's really important to understand these, you know, philosophical components, right? To, to, to understand. And I think another thing uh, that was also pretty interesting is that with Bitcoin, there's been a ton of content written on what is Bitcoin's social contract. Uh, what are Bitcoin's values? 
And these ideas have actually seeped into mainstream consciousness as well. Like when you hear about, you know, Michael Saylor or any of the major Bitcoin bulls, including, including some institutional investors, like they, they will touch on some of the, you know, core elements of Bitcoin social contract with the 21 million, it being immutable, censorship resistant, uh, decentralized, like all these different things. But for whatever reason with Ethereum, there's this perception because it keeps changing its narrative and because it's always evolving that its social contract is kind of like nebulous or it's just weak. And that's not necessarily true. Like there are like very consistent values that Ethereum has had and continues to have that the community agrees upon and that kind of keep the Ethereum uh, ecosystem together. So that was like really important to start, you know, upfront really right after introduction with what is like, what, what is Ethereum actually and, and, and why, like, what are we all doing here? Really trying to get to understand what Ethereum is. You have to understand, you know, where, where it kind of comes from and what are its key principles. And so that's why we kind of lined it up right there. Not only the philosophy going into why it was built, but then the principles of what Ethereum 2.0 is supposed to bring. And, and it, it goes into its design, why it took so long to come, why it took seven years of research to get to where it is, because they didn't want to sacrifice decentralization for all these different upgrades that they're looking to make. And mm -hmm. that was core to it, to its design, to its, uh, to its social contract going forward. So really kind of understanding that concept was key to diving into the rest of the report. I think like one thing I'll, I'll also add is that these concepts, like of Ethereum social contract, it's not just like some kind of ideological appeal to people. Like these ideas actually underpin many of the desirable properties about blockchains, making it so that they are globally accessible, making it so that they are unable to be censored. Pretty much everything that makes like a blockchain interesting is enabled by the fact that you have these like core ideas that actually become real uh, when they're manifested in like the design of a blockchain. Uh, yeah, it, it's not necessarily just, you know, trying to tell everyone like why, you know, what, what we believe in this industry, but to actually uh, get to understand like why this stuff is important in the first place. So I would imagine that like the, the research process, because of this difference, uh, the research process for producing this report was probably also like different. I, I don't know what your guys' backgrounds are with re producing reports of this nature, um, but I would imagine if you did have experience that this particular report was perhaps different than reports you've produced in the past, specifically based off of this like attempt to talk about the political philosophy and, and the ethos of a blockchain. Uh, so, so maybe talk about just the research process at large and also maybe any of the differences as a result of this unique nature of what Ethereum is and how that uh, impacted the way you guys came to coalesce the report. So I think a lot of the research, I mean, it's been like years in the making, especially on the more like philosophical and, and historical aspects of Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0. I mean, and that's, you know, years of you know, reading some of the content that you guys put out, like reading all of Vitalik's blog, blog posts, reading or watching all the interviews that Vitalik and, you know, various members of the Ethereum Foundation have, have given to, to really get a sense of, like, how, how are they thinking about uh, Ethereum 2.0? So in, in that respect, like, it, it, was a, it was a unique, I mean, it, it is similar because you're just finding information and synthesizing and putting it to report. Uh, again, I guess like another thing is that, uh, you know, you, you also have to understand some of these ideas, like what, what is a social contract in the first place, for example. So 
we actually had to do some research on, okay, well, what is a social contract and how do we actually express this idea and report that may actually be uh, like palatable to people who come to this space and just think this is just a technology. Like I've never heard of this concept of a social contract and especially applied to Ethereum, it seems crazy. Um, so uh, yeah, th those are kind of the differences. It's kind of interesting because I was drawing a little bit more on like experience because when I first, I, I mean, I, I'm, I guess I'm relatively new. I, I really got into crypto back in 2017. So typical bull run bandwagon fan. Oh, I'm um, right there with you, brother. <laughs> September 2017. <laughs> yes. Exactly. So yeah, same time. Um, so I, uh, it, when I first came in, uh, I, I was particularly drawn to Ethereum. And so that's kind of where I went. I started helping teach classes about, about people how to develop smart contracts. And um, so it was kind of like this, uh, this ecosystem of like a, a acceptance and uh, what I, and it was kind of like a pragmatic approach to everything, which is what I found very, very interesting going in. So kind of drawing on that and that kind of culture around what Ethereum was. And then the other part was really diving into not only the, a lot of the historical pieces that uh, Vitalik put together uh, six, seven years ago, but listening to a lot of the podcasts to try and get a deep understanding of um, what it was kind of like going through this process. And so I, I, in some cases, I was diving deep into Reddit threads of stuff that was happening like back in like 2014, 2015 and seeing kind of like, what, what, how were they saying? How were they acting? What was the community like at that time and how it evolved um, over time, which I've just, it, it was fascinating to kind of dive into the history of how everything has evolved over time, both Ethereum as we know it now and, and you know, ETH2 and uh, where it's going to go from there. I think what you're saying, Wilson, is super interesting because this is not how a traditional institutional investor would go collect data, right? They, they are not going to go to the Reddit threads or the old Vitalik posts or the Discord channels or Twitter. You know, heck, you know, we, we have some uh, probably institutional investor exposure at Bankless on like Substack and YouTube, but it's not necessarily their channel either. Like we don't package it in a way that um, institutional investors uh, like Dave and I don't wear suits yeah. generally, right? <laughs> like, so, um, but the way this is packaged, it's, it's very um, appealing to the institutional investor, I suppose, or, or the traditional investor who is um, used to reading like analytic heavy data driven sorts of reports like these on other traditional assets. I want to ask a question about who this report is for. Is that Kind of who it's for. It's obviously for the crypto community and anyone who is investing in crypto, right? They're going to read this report. Everyone who is reading Bankless should go read this report, obviously. Um, but also outside of that, are you guys trying to reach a new audience, an audience that maybe like Paul Tudor Jones of the world, they have, they understand the Bitcoin narrative and now they understand digital scarcity, but they don't yet understand Ethereum. That was my guess on who you're trying to reach uh, after reading this, but why, do, why don't you tell us, who's the target market for this kind of a report? Yeah, so I think we, what we wanted to create this so that it was accessible to kind of as, as many people as possible. So whether they be a user of Ethereum or an investor or someone who's building or a service provider in the space, we wanted to have insights that would be helpful for all these different groups to, to navigate the space. 
but yeah, I mean, definitely something that you know, we, we, we definitely considered, uh, probably like one of the first things we considered was actually how do we like really communicate what's special about Ethereum to this more like institutional, like more professional audience that now is comfortable with Bitcoin, now understands the value proposition of Bitcoin, but has not yet been able to grasp Ethereum because of how kind of like expansive the idea of Ethereum is. You know, I think when like we're, we're thinking about like how to, how to like craft this report, you know, one of the things like when people think about the smart contract market, and, and I'm sure like a Wilson can elaborate on this, you know, a lot more is that, you know, when people think about smart contract platforms, they think one, they are like utility platforms. Like they just, you know, and it's all about how much transaction throughput it has. It's all about how scalable it is. Like all, all this stuff that like, yes, does matter, but is probably about like less than half of the picture of what actually matters with these, these blockchains. Uh, and to understand, you know, why those things are everything, uh, it, it really was important to really like touch on, you know, kind of that first section on philosophy and history uh, to, to really like talk through the different design decisions that the theory of team made for Ethereum 2.0 uh, to highlight like why that's important. So, you know, hopefully it, it was written in a way that, uh, you know, someone with that more like professional background uh, will be able to appreciate, um, you know, with, with how it's written. Yeah, and, and exactly what you're saying on, on the institutional side, people from outside of Ethereum trying to get familiar with it. But I think I had a little bit of uh, something for everyone in a sense. So you can kind of get a sense of, of the history of the philosophy behind it. But I had a lot of talk on the monetary policy of ETH that, uh, that Watkins did a lot of phenomenal work on. So if you're looking as from an investment standpoint, those are some key critical parts that you definitely want to check out to understand what's coming forward with Ethereum. Um, so yeah, I, that was definitely one of the key things we talked about going in is who is this going to be for? How are we going to um, really structure this? and write it. Um, obviously we want to make it very approachable, but at the same time have something where people have some key takeaways uh, that they can make decisions on going forward. Very good. All right. Well, with all of that, I guess, set up, we want to get into some of the meat of the report. And um, I like what you were saying, Wilson, about sort of, you know, not just talking about kind of the, the, the network side of things, but also talking about issuance and ether as an asset, because I think a lot of people get they have trouble separating the difference between Ethereum as a smart contract network and Ether as a reserve asset for that network. Because in Bitcoin, it's a little bit one and the same. I mean, the purpose of Bitcoin is to you know transact Bitcoin and move Bitcoin around. So monetary policy is very tied into that. Anyway, we're going to get into all of that in the report, um, a few sections to cover. Can we start here, though, which is the scalability trilemma Maybe uh, Watkins, you could kind of describe what that is and why, why, what, like what ETH2 uh, does about that. Uh, basically, the high level idea with the scalability trilemma is that there exists this trade off between these three properties of a public blockchain being it can be decentralized, secure, uh, and scalable, but can't be, or it can only be one, like two of the three. And you know, different blockchains have made different trade-offs to get those desired properties. And it's been this, you know, really tough problem to, to try and uh, solve, especially for Ethereum, where it wants to become scalable, but 
doesn't want to sacrifice its security or decentralization. So one of the ways that Ethereum approached this problem is through uh, sharding, which is you know, one of the, the major components of Ethereum 2.0's design. And the high level idea with sharding is that it involves partitioning the Ethereum blockchain into subsets of nodes, which can you know, process transactions and store data kind of in, in parallel. And the reason why this is done is in this kind of like tying back to some of these you know, underlying uh, philosoph philosophical aspects of you know, why this was built, because Ethereum wants to ensure that yes, while it gets scalability, that it is still accessible for people to run uh, infrastructure for Ethereum. So that you know, someone with a laptop or some other kind of consumer hardware can participate in the consensus process and run a, an Ethereum uh, validator is something that's very important to maintain the property that this thing is decentralized and, and accessible. And then probably another aspect about this kind of uh, sharding component is that it, it also makes uh, Ethereum accessible for users when it's more scalable. So, and I think this is actually a really important point because if it's a case where transaction fees become extremely high in the future, uh, because block space is, is very limited, then practically speaking, the, the way that the majority of people would interact with the Ethereum blockchain would be through intermediaries that subsidize the transaction costs for them. And if that's the case, then all of these special properties of the blockchain don't actually flow up to end users. And that's kind of like a compromise on the on the vision. So scaling is important, not just from the perspective of you know, kind of the supply side of people who run the infrastructure for Ethereum, but also the demand side so that people can directly interact with the Ethereum blockchain and really take advantage of you know, all the, the special properties. As we've said so often, the, the alternative to scaling the, the base layer in some way or having a trustless scalability solution is basically you have to scale by trusted intermediaries, as you're saying. So often crypto banks, right? Mm -hmm. We see Bitcoin doing a lot of this today, right? Transactions through Coinbase, more institutionalization. Hopefully that is not the path that Ethereum takes. But I noticed you, you kind of plotted these things in, uh, I guess, different, different sides of the triangle here, right? Uh, and it looks like things that have uh, strong decentralization with high security are sort of on the left. And they're more conducive to money type use cases. So Bitcoin and Ethereum would be those. Those that kind of make some trade-offs with decentralization uh, in favor of getting more scalability like EOS or a Tron or a Ripple. Um, it, it seems like what you're saying in this graphic is they're not as conducive to non-sovereign money type use cases with bearer assets. Is that one of the ramifications of the scalability trilemma that you're drawing out here? That has to be a part of it. Um, the uh, the main purpose is they're making the accessibility to the base layer, whether as a node operator, as a, as a user, uh, or mainly as a node operator, very, very difficult. They're limiting that. Um, so when you have a limit, limited uh, number of node operators, obviously that's just a high amount of centralization that you have in the network. And as we've seen with some of the uh, cartel issues with, the, with EOS and obviously Tron, uh, you know, there are some issues that can, that can seriously bubble up there. So making that maximally democratic uh, is going to be far more be beneficial in the long term for any, uh, any network 
but it's it's tough to kind of meet that high level of security that something that Bitcoin and Ether have reached. And um, the, the, the one of the main reasons behind why they're valued at where they're at is because they do have this high monetary premium right now. Mm-hmm. And they are kind of seen as these store value assets. Uh, at least, it's, you know, some some people that most do. Uh, but uh, um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of wh- why Bitcoin either fell to one side and, and the others haven't because they really haven't um, reached that that point of uh, of how people kind of look at them as a store of value asset. Wilson, that sounds a little uh, ETH is money of you, sir. <laughs> is that what you're saying? L- a little bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we see a bunch of blockchains around the, the perimeters of this triangle. And then we see ETH2 at the center, right? And I feel like the, the reason why we wanted to start with this particular graphic is because this kind of illustrates the difficulty of like moving into the center. Like this is called a trilemma for a reason. Um, Jeff Coleman recently had a fantastic tweet thread that talked about like, why did ETH2 take so long? And the answer was, well, because it's hard. Uh, and like getting into that center point where you have a nice balance of security, decentralization and scalability, where you are working all the angles to maximize all three of these rather than having to make compromises is why Ethereum 2.0 has taken so long to get out the gate, right? And so it's at this point, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, with, with Ethereum 2.0 in, in uh, well, probably speaking of Ethereum 2.0 past phase 1.5 when uh, the ETH 1 and 2 chains merge, uh, there is nothing like Ethereum like that, right? And Ethereum 2.0 is what, it's it's not just trying to like have an evolution of Ethereum to me. Uh, it's, it's more like trying to, in the most pure and most essence way possible, solve the scalability trilemma, right? And as a result of that effort is what Ethereum 2.0 is, right? Ethereum 2.0 is the thing that solves the scalability trilemma, not some just inherent, it's, it's, it's technologically neutral, right? Like whatever needs, whatever technology needs to solve this scalability trilemma needs to be discovered. And that's what Ethereum 2.0 has morphed itself into, right? Out of a very long, like six year long research and development process. So I'm, I'm super happy to see this graphic like really early in the article because it really sets the foundation of the whole purpose of the whole point of this whole Ethereum thing. Uh, and also sets the groundwork for the rest of the article, right? rest of the uh, report. Uh, and I, I think you nailed it um, when you're talking about the, uh, it was uh, Jeff Coleman, um, yep. a tweet thread. That was an excellent tweet thread. That was fantastic uh, diving into why it took so long and, and the background on BLS signatures. So the idea that, the, and this is kind of why we put Ethereum 2.0 in the middle here is that there are other networks that have introduced uh, proof of stake and sharding, um, but no one's done it at the level that Ethereum 2.0 is looking to do it at. Mm-hmm. No one's going to have the level of, of validators that are on the network. And so um, that level, it, it kind of takes it to another level of like, where, hey, we're introducing the scalability um, feature. And then at the same time, you're going to be uh, significantly, significantly more decentralized than any other competitor at the moment. Um, who knows where they end up at, but just based on design, that's that's where it's leading to. Um, and just kind of one of the reasons why going back to that thread was the idea behind the BLS um, cryptographic uh, signature aggregation. Um, so basically, if you have a ton of validators in a network and you're pummeling the network with a bunch of signatures on each block, it can lead to a network overload. And so what BLS does is it basically aggregates the signatures and makes it very, very small so you can maintain the uh the speed of block finality with uh, without making node operator costs go through the roof. 
Let's let's talk about this graph, David. Yeah, so this this is one the, the subject we want to bring up next because again, this actually sound, sets up really important groundwork for why all of this effort needs to be undertaken in the first place, right? And when I when I first look at the, of, at this chart, and this is a chart of the percentage of Ethereum block space that's used, right? Like how full are the blocks on percentage terms? And we see like in the in, relatively in the center, we have like the 2017 like mania, right? We had, this is where we experienced like ICOs that sold out in, in 10 seconds because everyone was racing to get in the blocks. This is when we had CryptoKitties. Uh, this was like the first real test of Ethereum's capacity, right? And like we see, to, to me, when I look at this shaded area in the center, uh, I see three big spikes, one in like Q1, uh, 2017, one in Q2, and then maybe one in like late Q4, uh, 2017. And it's that in each spike, it's progressively higher and higher and higher, right? Like the first spike spikes up to roughly 70% full. Then like the second spike is 85-ish, 90% full. And then the third spike in 2017 uh, actually got to, to comparable levels that we see in, in DeFi summer 2020, like nine, plus 95% full, which if you're above 90%, 95% of a block, you're basically full. That's basically a full block. Uh, and what's interesting to me is like, Okay, that's great. Uh, we reached capacity, but that was in like peak mania times. But we actually didn't really fall off in block usage between 2017 and, and 2020. It stayed relatively high. And then the first instance of like DeFi coming back to life after the bear market of 2018, it looks like we have just this incredibly high sustained block percentage used uh, in 20, in, in 2020, like it starts uh, at the very start of DeFi summer 2020, it's like 95%. And at the end, it looks like it's something like 98% full. Uh, and so to me, this is just like extremely validating of the whole, um, incentive or, or need, uh, need to scale Ethereum, right? Like we're trying to scale Ethereum and, and this is why we're doing it. Like the first instance of Ethereum becoming like adopted again, we max it out. We, it's like it's already, it's already maxed out and like this is before like new wakes of people come into the space um that's my analysis what's what's your guys' take when you see this uh chart yeah so uh, i was give a couple of thoughts and then i'll bounce it off to, to wilson but yeah I, th I think you nailed it like the the reason why ethereum is like ethereum is not doing this upgrade because they just want to make things complicated like that's not what they're doing like the reason why there's this transition to Ethereum 2.0 is because like Ethereum doesn't currently scale today. And it's cool that we can run all these very interesting experiments on here and everything that's happened, you know, even during the ICO boom, but you know, especially now with, with DeFi, uh, it's, it's incredible uh, what, what's been built on here. But what we're doing now is still very small scale and nowhere near what you know, the, the level of uh, scalability we need if we actually want Ethereum to uh, actually serve as a you know, public infrastructure for the world where you can actually run you know, significant amounts of the world economy on Ethereum uh, and actually start, you know, have, have like real people actually use this thing. So uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that, this is why Ethereum 2.0 was built. Yeah, I, 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 I won't add too much. I'll, I'll say on top of that, I, I kind of wrote it in the piece, but I thought this was um, clear affirmation of, you know, some of the concerns that uh, a lot of the developers and researchers, when they first built Ethereum, they, ha they had those concerns around, you know, Ethereum couldn't scale, should it reach this level of utility. Um, but it also affirmed a lot of the research that they had already been doing and researches that they put towards building Ethereum 2.0. 
Um, so that, that was a clear reason in this whole event uh, starting in 2017, and you can see it hasn't gone down since, um, is, is the clear showing that there is a, is a need for, uh, for scalability and that it's a top priority. I have two uh, thoughts on this when I when I see this, which is super interesting. Um, but it's a little bit of a side quest. You know, one thought when I see this is, oh my god! Like in 2017, we wasted block space on all sorts of stupid things. <laughs> There's this concept we talk about on Bankless, um, like economic density of blocks, the transactions like the more economic value and throughput being pushed in each block. And this is something, by the way, that happens in Bitcoin, right, as well. Mm -hmm. But it also, it, when I look at this uh, and I contrast it from three years ago, it also seems to be happening in Ethereum. Like in DeFi Casino Summer, um, we were spending blocks on more productive things. Like these are collateralized loans, you know, a, a lot of still speculative behavior, but it wasn't crypto kitties, right? And I wonder like three years from now or five years from now, if the things we did in DeFi summer are going to seem awfully silly too and awfully wasteful, because it seems to be the case that at least on the main chain, these transactions are getting more and more economically dense. And you guys talked about rollups a little bit later on and kind of that uh, way of thinking about Ethereum. And that is a, that is a, a maximally economic, economically dense transaction because mm -hmm. you're doing all of this economic activity in a roll-up chain. And then essentially you're just like settling that on the main chain. So that that's that's one thing I think of. Um, any reaction to that? Is, was that an observation that you made as well? I, you know, I'm just kind of even thinking about it a little bit more right now. And uh, you'll see a lot of these. And I, I, this is just how I'm thinking of is each cycle that we go through in 2017 and what we went through in DeFi uh, Casino Summer is we're going to go through these cycles of where things start to get somewhat popular and then, <laughs> and then they'll catch on. Um, and you almost, you almost need to run through that. Yeah. You need to get to the other side and, uh, and then the ones that actually have some utilities, some good teams behind them, as we're seeing right now with like urine is basically eating up all of DeFi. Um, they're the ones that are going to come out and be, uh, a potential front runner or uh, all I mean is that they'll, they'll still be there come the next cycle of, uh, of whatever comes next. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be related to DeFi, but, uh, what that's going to be, maybe it's not liquidity mining, um, food coins, but it's something even more, um, even more interesting related to it's very, uh, it's very well. survival of the fittest, isn't it? In a, in a healthy evolutionary way. And only the most valuable transactions survive because those are the only ones that can compete for block space, which is super interesting. Um, we want to move on to this maybe because this is sort of related, I guess, to um, block space, but the median Ethereum daily fees have uh, certainly shot up as well. And that means like I was, I was looking the other day at token terminal uh, and basically ETH fees annualized are about 700 million right now. Right. So if you look at kind of all of the fees that are going to pay for block space, um, Ethereum is generating 700 million in revenue, which is pretty surprising because that was not the case in uh, 2017. What's the story between behind the Ethereum daily fees? Are blocks just becoming more more valuable, or like what does this tell us? Is this also uh, part of the story of oh my god, we need scalability on the base layer too? Yeah, definitely part of this the same story, except uh, I guess maybe this chart highlights the perspective 
of the, the user of Ethereum and what they experience if they're trying to submit a transaction. So throughout this year, like you kind of see like the median daily uh, fees like paid on Ethereum is in, in ETH terms is about 2000 ETH. And then since kind of like the DeFi summer, which I'll say started in, in June, it was around like 5,000 ETH uh, per day, which is a ton. I mean, and, and we'll talk about this kind of in the section we get to uh, Ethereum 2.0's monetary policy and uh, you know, what happens when you start burning some of those transaction fees and, and you know why that matters. But uh, yeah, this, it just really highlights just just how how much more competition there was to get your transactions included into blocks because there was just so much opportunity on Ethereum this summer uh, for people. I mean, I mean, to be frank, just for people to make money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the criticism is real, right? At sort of the peak in in October. Um, lots of folks in DeFi were saying, I'm like, this is just a whale chain, right? Like we yeah. can't afford a basic transaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, only if you only have a certain amount of capital, maybe you can, but it's not worth it for my $500, tr- you know, transaction to actually pay a hundred dollars in gas fees to do this thing. Um, well, let, let's switch to issuance. Cause I think that is another key part of the story. So we were it's talking all, about all the same story. Blocks. The, the flow, all the same the story. <laughs> So we're talking about blocks and that being kind of the, the chief commodity that um, Ethereum sells, I guess, right? Is get, get, your, get your blocks in uh, an Ethereum transaction. We're, we're selling that to you and you have to pay an ETH, by the way. Um, but this is a story around Ether as an asset and its net annual issuance, right? And we'll get into why that matters, maybe kind of the, the three points on the triangle. We call it the triple point asset uh, thesis. But um, can you talk about this? Because I'm not sure that many people, frankly, know this, guys, right? Like, uh, I don't know how many times a week I get asked on Twitter, uh, what is ETH's issuance into the future, right? <laughs> I'm like, well, like, uh, we kind of know it, right? Like, I, I can't tell you there's a fixed amount of Ether, but we kind of know it. Can you tell us what we know and, and how we know and what this graph is showing us? Yeah, so some helpful background for this is just to describe Ethereum's monetary policy, kind of what it is. And you know, you guys have discussed this plenty of times, um, so it might be prepared for you guys. But the, the high-level idea with Ethereum's monetary policy, uh, it can be defined as like minimum necessary issuance. And basically what that means is that Ethereum always aims to issue enough ETH to ensure that it remains secure now and into the future. Now, the trade-off with that is that, and this is probably many people's criticisms, is that who defines what minimum necessary issuance is? It's something that sounds very technocratic, uh, subjective. Sounds hand Yeah, and it's like it's like really hard to, to really like quantify like what that actually is. Um, but but. Practically speaking, I mean, this has always been Ethereum's monetary policy. And what's happened in practice is that Ethereum's monetary policy has only changed uh, twice in its history. And both adjustments were to reduce this monetary policy. Uh, so this is not something that, like, while, yes, it may be a little bit kind of, you know, uh, like it's not like clearly defined. Practically speaking, you, if there was going to be a change to Ethereum monetary policy, there would need to be ecosystem-wide agreement to, to do so. So this is not something that can just change at the you know, flick of, you know, if, if a talent just says one day, like, hey guys, like, let's jack up the inflation to 
10%. Mm-hmm. Like this is it. Like that, that's just not how it's going to work. Now, I think that, that it's kind of important to highlight the, the differences here. So Ethereum has designed its monetary policy to prioritize security. And this is in opposition to Bitcoin, which has designed its monetary policy uh, for, for kind of like monetary idealism, at least what the Austrian thinks is what would be like ideal money. And the, the trade-off with that, you know, because we kind of discussed the trade-offs with the minimum necessary issuance, the trade-off with optimizing for, you know, this, this perfect money is that as a consequence, you also set your security budget arbitrarily. It's unclear if having halvings every four year and then ultimately a fixed supply where the Bitcoin blockchain will be supported by fees is actually viable in the long run. Uh, so that's that's a trade-off that Bitcoin makes. Um, so I, now that we have that kind of you know framework for how to think about the monetary policy, well, this is how like it actually translates into you know Ethereum 2.0. So when phase zero launches, well, I'm saying this as if it hasn't launched, I mean, now that phase zero has launched, all of the issuance on Ethereum to the ETH2 beacon chain will actually be incremental to what's on the ETH1 chain. So for the next, maybe call it you know, one to two years before the ETH1 chain merges into ETH2, Ethereum's annual issuance will actually increase slightly. And it'll increase maybe about, yeah, so like here it is, it'll increase you know, probably somewhere between you know, 0.10% and under the most aggressive assumptions, maybe 0.8%. Uh, this is a temporary thing, right? Like, because once that uh, Ethereum 1 merges into Ethereum 2, well, all of that issuance that's coming from Ethereum 2.0 that right now is incremental will now become the only issuance for Ethereum 2.0. So if we go back to the last chart, uh, that's kind of what it's showing is that once this merger happens, Ethereum's annual issuance weight will drop uh, you know, well below 1%, potentially even below zero. Mm-hmm. And kind of like that range you see on the screen, that's depending on how many trans, how much transaction fees are are burned. So one of the things I touched on before is how when EIP one five five nine, which is kind of like a proposal to restructure how users bid for block space, that results in majority transaction fees being burned. Uh, depending on how much transaction fees are being burned in E two, it can actually cause Ethereum's net issuance to actually be negative, despite the fact that Ethereum 2.0 is perpetually uh, inflationary. Which should be super interesting because at that point, I mean, you're talking about Ethereum's issuance rate effectively being zero, while Bitcoin's issuance rate is 1.8%. And I don't think this is something that you know many people have have appreciated yet. Just just how, uh, I mean, potentially deflationary Ethereum could be uh, at, at this point. One thing I just read, I just want to read this last line here because it's, it's kind of encapsulates what you're saying. It's very likely that once ETH 1.0 merges with ETH 2, Ethereum will not only be the most secure blockchain, but also the one with the most credibly no, low monetary policy. That's the summary of what you just said. Yeah. And I guess when I say credible, I really just mean credible in the sense that it is very likely that this is sustainable. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be a question of down the line, like, right. is this issuance enough to so that Ethereum remains secure? Uh, so that's kind of where that, that credible part comes from. 
Ryan, you, you talked about how like uh, you gave the theoretical hypothetical example of like if, so, if somebody asks you like, well, what, what's Ethereum's like monetary policy? Like, you know, tell me how much Ether there's going to be in 10 years. Uh, if, if somebody can answer that question with a, like a specific number, the ability to do that comes as a sacrifice to the uh, understanding, the knowing of the security at that point in time. It's, it's kind of like a... Uh, that I, I, don't, I, don't, there, I don't know what law there is. It's something to do with quantum physics, but you, you can either know the velocity of a, of a particle and not the place, or you can know the place of a particle, but not the velocity, right? Like there, there's some like quantum physics rule about that. And so that's the same thing with blockchain security and monetary issuance. It's like either you get to uh, supremely decide what the monetary issuance policy of a blockchain is, or you get to decide what the security of a blockchain is, but not both, right? You only get to maximize for one of those two things. And the thing is like with Ethereum, it decided to innovate and be pragmatic in its approach to generating security. And one of the big incentives to um, generating a very efficient and, and efficient in security blockchain is that that allows you optionality with your monetary policy. And so like the, the innovation behind proof of stake means that we get to tinker with our monetary policy in ways that are long-term net positive for the ecosystem. So at the same time, we've been able to generate a secure environment for the Ethereum economy, while also we've been able to figure out a path forward for something that is actively deflationary versus something that is just passively in, in uh, passively deflationary. And that's, that's what I see in like this, this uh, chart here where like the thing, the, the line is variable, but it's trending in the direction that you want it to no matter what. And I, I want to go back to the, the line that, that Ryan just, uh, just read out. Ryan, if you want to scroll down a little bit. Um, to me, when I, when I read that line, that, that felt like a mic drop moment. And because if, if you gave out this line two years ago, back in, back in peak bear markets when the, the Bitcoiner like maxi narrative had, was like dominating. And if, if you got like Ryan Selkis to like, Ryan Selkis, like what, what, what do you think about this line? I'm sure people were, would be like, like, no, that's just completely ridiculous. But the fact that this sentence is being like reported out in a report nowadays, to me just indicates like how many people are starting to wake up to like this new alternative security model and the, the positive benefits of the monetary policy over the long term. And so I see this as just like a, 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 a shifting of the tides, if you will, about like the, the perception of ether from like the outside in. And, and I'm just really thankful that you guys are putting this, put, actually putting these words into a report because they mean so much. When you guys typed, whoever, whoever typed this into this page, did you think about the implications of, of typing those words in when you type that? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that definitely, you know, we definitely did. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that there will be people that are triggered and, and rightfully so, because this is something that uh, could ha like will happen, or I should say it's, it's, this is something that is planned to happen mm -hmm. in, you know, one to two years. And in theory, it's not guaranteed. So I can get why people will be skeptical mm -hmm. uh, if they read something like that and they are, you know, have a predisposition to be an Ethereum skeptic, but this, this is the plan. And if Ethereum 2 works out the way that it's been designed, this, this will happen. And at that point, uh, people will need to deal with the, the consequences. And, you know, granted, even at that point, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, people still might not get it. Maybe they'll be like, you know what? 
Uh, Ethereum is still perpetually inflationary and it will be hard to get people to buy the narrative. Uh, we still don't know, but I, this this is something that that will happen if the 2.0 works out and it's it's important, it's integral to understanding uh, how ETH will evolve as an asset and Ethereum 2.0 when, when it does uh, you know, try to kind of fully roll out. I want to I want to uh, answer that question another way too, right? Because when someone asks you uh, what is the monetary policy of Ether, how much supply will there be, right? The the answer, of course, is what we've said: minimum necessary issuance, right? It's this balance this trade off between we're going to maximize for security, but we also like. It's not like we don't know. Like we know the bounds of what this is going to be. Like it's not that hard, right? So, maximum is four point eight two percent. Like that's probably going to be the maximum because we're not going to have likely more than 30 million staked ETH. And it'll probably fall somewhere in the 10 to you know 16K range. So we're probably talking about before the merger, a 4.47 to 4.6% issuance rate, right? So like that's the max. And we know it won't be more than that. And if this merger happens, which again, as you say, is not concrete, nothing in the future is, who knows, right? Um, but if the plan is carried forward, and by the way, we have evidence that the plan seems to be working because ETH2 just launched, okay? If you haven't but heard. if that happens, yeah, <laughs> if you haven't heard, in two years or so, which is what the timeline um, what the timeline kind of predicts, look, maybe you're bearish on that, maybe it happens in three years, maybe it happens, but, but there's a tremendous amount of momentum and force from the community to deliver on this plan. And we just completed the hardest part. If that happens, then we get a drop of issuance down below the 1% range. And do we know whether that's going to be 1% or negative half a percent? No, but to me, both of those scenarios are pretty damn deflationary. Mm -hmm. Like that's a pretty good store of value asset. It's a pretty good story. So I am fired up because I'm also tired of people saying like acting like Vitalik could trigger a master node and suddenly inflate like 15% annual issuance into his personal account and steal it like a Fed chairman or something, because that's just not true. But I want to ask you a question. Here, because I'm getting to a question. This is not just a rant. <laughs> Why is this so taboo? What, like, so David and I have been talking about this. You guys know, right? For like the last the drum. year and a half to two years, right? It's why we started Bankless, like literally, to talk about this stuff because no one else was. And here's the first report I've seen that is actually like spreading the truth about what is about to happen uh, for Ethereum, right? And you guys are doing it and fantastic. Thank you. Like sincerely, thank mm -hmm. you. But why has it been so taboo to, to do this? Is it, is it the fact that it's taboo or maybe it's something else? Maybe it's just the data is hard to compile. What's your sense as, as analysts as to why no one else has written a report like this? Yeah, I mean, I, there's probably a, a, a ton of different things going on for, for why people uh, always discount this scenario that could happen. I think among them is that uh, many of the early people who got involved in, in Bitcoin were, were playing for a very specific thing when they want, when they thought about what a cryptocurrency would be. And they're playing for a fixed supply uh, currency with a deterministic monetary policy. And 
when that's what you're playing for and when that's what you don't want to compromise on, when someone offers an alternative, uh, oftentimes I feel like people can think in binaries that it's either fixed or it's hyperinflationary and Ethereum is going to be, you know, Zimbabwe on the, on the blockchain. And that's just, <laughs> and that's just not, uh, this is not true. Um, so I think that was probably one of the, you know, one, of, one of the biggest things is just that, uh, you know, some people just, just don't want to, you know, and also I think another thing is that for whatever reason, there's this idea that there will only be one uh, crypto asset that will succeed and that there's not a, a future where these different blockchains, Ethereum and Bitcoin can actually be symbiotic and they can both be successful, that it's not a zero sum game. And I think that that like thinking is, is you know, probably one of the reasons why, you know, so many people have been able to you know, appreciate this. And you know, hopefully that, that will change, you know, especially when you know, this ETH1 merger finally happens and uh, this thing is real and it's no longer a point of you know, contention or a what if, it's just this, this, this exists. You know? Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, you, you, that, on that last point, I, I couldn't agree more. It was the, uh, the idea that, um, that there will only be one winner, winner take all situation. And especially when you have a lot of Bitcoin holders uh, or people that have been in crypto for a while, uh, as soon as you tie any sort of, you know, financial uh, holdings to this, uh, this narrative, uh, that's going to just kind of bring out this ideology that's not going to allow someone to kind of think of uh, something else as, as money. And I think that was the, the other thing that kind of maybe attributed to uh, why it was potentially taboo is the idea that using ETH as, as money, uh, that narrative was, I guess, kind of brought up more within, it kind of got legs within the last like two years. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of looking at it when you're, you're thinking about issuance uh, schedules, you really kind of do that for assets that you're looking at it from a, a monetary standpoint and less so for something that might be just used as a utility or gas. Um, so actually starting to look at Ethereum from a different perspective um, I think that's exactly something as, as, as it starts to gain more, um, acceptance, then you'll start to, uh, maybe see more people look at it. So I think that, that, that was kind of one of the reasons why we definitely wanted to take that perspective, like, as we were saying, uh, get everything into this report. So everyone understands what's, what's really going on. All right. Ready to move forward. Let's move forward. I do have one solution. If you're, if you're a Bitcoiner, you know, is, you could just buy some ETH, right? You could diversify a little bit, Hedge. right? So like, I think having some investment in the space does color views on the space and it, it's okay to be hedged. Um, I guess if we're moving on, maybe could we talk about this concept of uh, the staking implications on ETH because that is the thing that launched today, right? Mm -hmm. And we've used this term um, like ether as an internet bond. And it looks like you guys agree with that as well. Can you comment on this this kind of sovereign bond analogy and what that means for ether as an asset what that like turns ether into yeah and, and I'm, I'm sure this will probably end up leading into uh the ether triple point asset oh we're getting there <laughs> yeah, uh, we're building <laughs> yeah but yeah i think so uh guys that you touch on this uh, earlier uh, that Mara and Colin did this great report called like, Ethereum, the, the internet bond. And 
it was, it was a really interesting report because, you know, when you think about like what staking is, uh, it's not entirely clear that there is a very uh, you know, easy analogy to what, what is happening here. So there are aspects of it that are similar to like a, a sovereign bond in the sense that, you know, if you think, and this is like a very simplistic model, but if you think, you know, why do, you know, why does the United States raise uh, capital uh, via selling treasuries? Well, in large part, I mean, its largest expense is to pay for its defense. And there's kind of a similar concept here with Ethereum. It's like, why, why is, like, what is Ethereum doing? It's raising capital from people who will ETH and it's using that capital to then go and uh, secure itself. And another common thread between you know, a nation state issuing a, a, a sovereign bond and Ethereum paying people staking is that the currency that it's paying uh, kind of like these bond holders is one that actually issue, issues itself. So Ethereum is issuing users ETH for you know, staking on the Ethereum protocol. And that's interesting because of you know, what, what it means for the, the risk you take when you're staking. So like the risk you take when you're staking are really two risks. It's one systemic risk, and that's just the idea of like Ethereum failing. Um, and then two would be a validator risk. So the, the risk that your validator underperforms and you get penalized, or let's say you blame maliciously and you get slashed. Now validator risk can actually be diversified away if you were to stake through like a decentralized staking protocol, like say like Rocket Pool, in which case you're just holding this kind of like ETH bond that is paying you uh, ETH for providing the service to Ethereum blockchain. Now, uh, it's not quite just like a sovereign bond because there's also these other interesting components of it, right? Like uh, there's no maturity on it. Users can demand their money back uh, whenever they want, obviously subject to like withdrawal period. Uh, it's perpetual. Um, and there's also, you also get paid transaction fees as well. So yes, like when EIP 1559 is implemented, the majority of transaction fees will be burned. But there will be a portion of it that is actually not burned. And that portion of it that's not burned will be based on uh, you know, Ethereum's ability to kind of serve, serve users well in their use cases. And this is almost like an equity component to it as well, because uh, it's kind of like this like variable component of how much return that a staker can get that's based off the utility of the Ethereum uh, blockchain. So, it kind of is this like really kind of new like financial opportunity for for investors to be able to you know basically like lend your ETH to the Ethereum blockchain and receive this return from this non-sovereign but in a sense sovereign because Ethereum is like the sovereign over like Ethereum users uh, you know source of yield. Uh, providing the service. So yeah, I think it's like a, a super interesting like opportunity for, for people. By the way, Watkins, I'm not sure that people know about that last part, right? So I, we've talked a lot about EIP 1559 and the burn, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's a transaction, some portion is burnt and that benefits all ETH holders because it reduces supply, of course. But if you're staking, if you're a validator, you also receive some proceeds for denominating ETH from that transaction mm -hmm. too in addition to the block rewards that you receive. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. Exactly. Uh, Wilson, do you want to add anything onto that? Um, 
And I, I think I, I couldn't have covered it better. Um, but, uh, that, but, uh, I, I think it's, uh, important to kind of fit these kind of narratives around what's, uh, what's actually happening here, uh, because it just makes it that much more acceptable. What's going, what's, uh, what's going on. Cause, uh, even there, there's still some people who are skeptical, uh, skeptical of what proof of stake can actually provide and being mm-hmm. able to kind of bring a story around it and make it relatable, um, just makes it that much easier to understand what's actually going on. Do you guys think that this is a narrative that the legacy markets, the legacy institutions, the institutions, this headless thing that everyone keeps on pointing to, do you think this, this is a, a narrative that people can grasp onto these days? This is to be determined. I feel like part of that would be predicated on acceptance of ETH as a monetary store of value. And then I think once you get over that hurdle, uh, this becomes an incremental benefit to being able to hold ETH and that you can be productive with it mm-hmm. by you know, staking. Cool. All right. Totally agree. Should we get to it, David? Here, here. I know you're itching to get to we're it. Here. We're here? Are we here? Is this yeah. the moment? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, this is the moment. <laughs> so asset superclass triangle. And, and when I see this, I see Ether, the triple point <laughs> asset, right? And so uh, I kind of want to ask you guys like your thought process as to, to why you thought that the Ether, the triple point asset thesis was worthy of getting included into this report. Yeah, so... I think this is actually a recent tweet that Vitalik had where he was like, when describing uh, like assets, now I might be like boshing what he was saying, but the, the general idea is that like when describing uh, things in the blockchain world, like assets, it's better to describe their properties than to just like kind of box them into like what they are. And with Ethereum, you know, there's always been this, and I, this is something I, I struggle with as well is like, what what actually is this thing? Like, is it just a commodity because it's used as you know fuel for transactions? I mean, there's also the analogy back in 2017 that Ethereum was just kind of digital oil, and that's like that's not really the entire story. It's not quite just oil. And then you know, is it a store of value? Uh, well, I mean, that's something that you know you guys always talk about, uh, but that's also the full story because it's not just something that people use for collateral and DeFi and to pay for transactions, etc. Um, and the mistaking, well, now you can actually get like a, a yield for on your on your ether. So now you have these like three like properties of, of asset. And maybe I should also zoom out and just describe what these properties uh, mean and kind of where they come from. So I think like back in 2017, uh, Chris, Ber- Chris Berdisky and, and Adam White wrote this paper called Ring the, the Bell on a New Asset Class, where they looked at Bitcoin and then they kind of introduced research uh, from, I guess, a guy named Robert Greer about uh, classes of different assets. And you know, this dude basically said that there's three super classes of assets, stores of value, which are assets that retain their personal power to the future. There are commodities, which are you know, assets that can be consumed or transformed. And there are capital assets, which can you know, be, um, they're capital assets that can like generate an income, right? Now, uh, with Ethereum, it is, I mean, as far, and granted, I have not looked through every asset in history to determine <laughs> if this statement <laughs> I say is true, but it, it could be like the first asset that actually has all three of these properties. So if you look on this, uh, this kind of uh, visualization, 
Uh, we've had assets that have been too. So we've had gold and, and Bitcoin, which are both you know, commodities and stores of value. We've had US treasury securities, which are both uh, capital assets and stores of value, right? Like people will gladly, I mean, there's what, like $17 trillion of negative yielding debt that people are holding. They're not holding it because of yield, they're holding it because of store value, right? But Ethereum is actually probably one of the only assets that actually has all three of these properties. And, you know, I think it's just good to highlight these properties because they, you know, not to try and like box Ethereum to like, it's like, it's a, like this is one thing, like all oh, like Ethereum is money or Ethereum is commodity or Ethereum is this, just saying like it just has some properties and these properties are, could be different sources of demand for uh, ETH on the Ethereum blockchain. Like ETH will be demanded to, as a store of value, ETH will be demanded to pay for block space. ETH will be demanded to stake. And this I think is actually what's important for people to understand from an investment standpoint about Ethereum. It's not some abstract concept of like, oh, like it's money or, oh, it's a commodity or it's a capital asset. It's like, no, that there, there's three kind of different use cases that are all pulling upon it uh, for uh, to, to be used. And that's an important driver of, of value. Do you guys think that when somebody from the outside world, maybe a money manager, family office, quote unquote institution, when they stumble on this page of, of this report, do you think they're ready for some sort of uh, uh, interpretation like this? Because this is like not something that is within the legacy topics. Like this is a very inherently crypto-based uh, narrative or, or topic. So when, when the outsider perspective uh, comes in and sees this, what do you guys think their gut take is going to be? Uh, well, hopefully I'd want to uh, fix the title under capital asset. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um... <laughs> But yeah, I mean, ho hopefully this can this can help people understand, uh, just help them to begin to understand what drives Ether's value, mm -hmm. uh, because it really is difficult. Like people would love to have these assets just fit into predefined boxes, uh, but that's just not the case. Like you, you really can't just box in what Ether is, and I think that's fine. Because part of what makes this industry interesting is that in many cases, we are reinventing what like money is and we're like creating these like new uh, assets that haven't before existed. So I think it's fine that you can't box it in and that it has these various properties that we may not be able to make sense of now, but uh, certainly uh, are important. In, in, in driving value for for ether so hopefully that you know that idea can get across in this page of you know sure you might not be able to it doesn't neatly fit into some some box that you you have in your head but here, here's what makes it valuable so what david and i have found through our travels is this is the simplest way to explain ether as an asset this idea of an asset superclass triangle this idea of the triple point asset thesis um, we need to take this to the world guys. <laughs> like we're like, what's the next step here? How do we get people to understand it? There's an element of, I feel like we're Bitcoin, like ether is Bitcoin in 2015 mm -hmm. where some niche group understands it, but like institutions didn't understand digital gold back then. They thought it was like, you know, hacker money or drug money or something like that. Right. 
So I feel like we need to, to take this out to more people and spread the message. I, you know, I know that's what you're doing with your, your report here, but uh, man, we're aligned. Let's do this guys. <laughs> well, this is the collateral we need to get that done. Um, so that's why we're so excited to see this. You know, I do have one, um, I guess, thought on this. So as I've thought about the triple point asset thesis in these in these um, three ways, one like next level thing. So first of all, this is the way to explain it exactly as you had, in my opinion, Watkins, you did a great job. Um, one subtlety I've, I've often wondered is, well, actually like the commodity here is not actually ether, the asset. The commodity is actually Ethereum block space, which is different. We were talking about that, that block space earlier. But Ether, the asset, is almost like the petrodollar because that's what, like as, as you know, barrels of oil are all denominated in US dollars in kind of the real world. That is the unit of account for barrels of oil worldwide, US dollars as the reserve currency, as the petrodollar, if you will. Ether is kind of the reserve currency for the commodity, which is Ethereum block space, right? So like the next level of thinking about this, I think is understanding that subtlety. We don't have to get in investors there yet, but that's what I've come to, to think of it as. It's like Ether is actually just the unit of account for that commodity, which is Ethereum block space. I don't know if you guys agree with that. I brought that up with Chris Berninski when we had him on the podcast. He was like, ah, I'll have to think about that some more. Yeah. I, I, thoughts I, on that. I remember when you tweeted that out. And uh, yeah, the, the kind of idea that Ethereum was Ether was gas money. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, it, it's just kind of like an easy way to think about it. Uh, you know, you go fill up your tank and you're just paying with your credit card, whatever cash. Um, and that's essentially the Ether in that transaction. So um, uh, it's, it's a very interesting way to think about it because I, I think kind of wrapping ahead around the, the uh, asset superclass thesis. Um, it makes it sound really nice when Ether acts as that commodity as well. Um, it does. I don't so want to I, in, <laughs> plug your ears, institutional investors. Let's go with that. So super class. <laughs> don't worry. We'll address the rest in 2025 when you're ready. Yeah. Well, it's important no, I, to know that like when you purchase block space with Ether, you're actually, mm -hmm. you're, there's an intermediary currency that is gas. And so it actually goes mm -hmm. Ether, gas, block space. And when you are like calculating the way for the gas price or whatever, like you are actually doing a very quick instantaneous creation and then just destruction of this gas currency, which then purchases you the, the, the block space. Right. And so like this conversation actually gets really, really nuanced. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, honestly, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, and honestly, I think that the commodity analogy will be even stronger when EIP-1559 is implemented. Yeah. And there's actually this direct relationship between right. block space being used in Ethereum, either the currency being like consumed. Gasoline wouldn't be as expensive if it was renewable. That is for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I think we have maybe one last area we yeah. wanted to cover really quickly. And this is um, in the report to do with... Um, decentralized staking, right? So staking is now upon us. And you guys have characterized, I thought this was pretty unique, decentralized staking protocols, almost as investment banks. Can you talk about what these um, decentralized staking pools could actually become in the future and, and how you think about them? Yeah, so there, were, there was a really good uh, article in the paper that uh, Alex and Alex Evans from Placeholder and Tarun from uh, Gauntlet wrote uh, about this topic of, you know, what 
proof of stake and DeFi can learn from mortgage-backed securities. And they kind of introduced this concept that uh, staking derivatives are similar to mortgage-backed securities. And what this kind of diagram is, is showing is what that process looks like under the hood when you stake through a decentralized staking protocol. And the process is you as someone who wants to stake deposits your ETH into this protocol. Let's say it's like Rocket Pool. And then Rocket Pool will then go and allocate that ETH to different uh, validators in this kind of network. Right, so it's almost like a two-sided marketplace. Investors on one side who want to stake, validators on the other side who want ETH to stake with. And if you think about it, the validators are in a sense receiving loans on ETH because they, they don't actually have to put up the entire 32 ETH that they need to stake. They're actually borrowing you know, part of that uh, 32 ETH to, to stake and they need to pay it back. Hmm. Um, now that's interesting because you know you, you when you hold this kind of ETH derivative that you get from depositing your ETH into one of these like, decentralized staking protocols, well, what does that ETH actually represent? It is a claim on the underlying ETH that is being loaned out to all these validators. So one analogy to think about this is that imagine like each validator loan is kind of like a mortgage and then you're packaging those validator loans into a security like a mortgage-backed security and that's essentially what this uh derivative ETH is it's kind of just like this package of all these different you know loans to different validators and i think it's also interesting it's actually where i think these decentralized staking protocols uh will actually be uh preferable as a form of ETH derivative is that it actually diversifies the underlying, I mean, just like mortgage-backed securities diversify the underlying risk of, uh, you know, a single mortgage failing. Similarly, like uh, a derivative ETH that's issued from one of these staking protocols diversifies the risk that individual validator fails. So and that's a lot better than if you were to go in and stake with a centralized service provider, like say an exchange and you know, if their validator fails, then that ETH derivative is, is like in, you know, it's, it's toast. Um, so, I, and I think that that'll, that'll probably be why people will prefer this. Uh, Come up with the fact that, and this is, you know, very protocol specific, but uh, in the case with like Rocket Pool, well, validators are actually in a position of first loss if they get penalized or slashed for behaving maliciously. So, you know, Validators have to put up 16 ETH. They get the other 16 ETH from uh, stakers in the protocol. If it was the case where you know they got slashed for five ETH, then that validator would lose that five ETH as well. So from the perspective of someone who holds this derivative ETH, uh, not only do you get to diversify the validator risk, but you also get uh, kind of like insurance against uh, being penalized or, or losing because the validator misbehaves. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, that was kind of the idea of these you know, staking pools and you know how how big they could be when Ethereum. Yeah, I, I keep saying when Ethereum 2.0. <laughs> now that Ethereum 2.0 has, has launched, you're used to it, brother. <laughs> so uh, before I hop in, Wilson, we, we want to add anything. I, I I just think this is kind of one of the most interesting aspects of Phase Zero. Uh, this mm -hmm. idea of uh, 
the illiquidity dilemma for validators or prospective stakers and um, how this is going to play out between the centralized protocols versus centralized protocols. And I, I know the centralized uh, staking protocols are going to, um, in a sense, um, mitigate that that risk, that validator risk a little bit more. Um, but I will say, like, if you're staking with Coinbase, most likely they're probably going to insure any any losses off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think there's a, a lot more that could go on. The, the, one of the clear benefits of, of utilizing these decentralized services is obviously um, you're not using uh, a custodial service. Um, so you still kind of have that, uh, that ownership over. Uh, and exactly what Ryan was saying, um, uh, you, it, there's a built-in insurance protocol as well. Right. So here's, here's when I was reading through the report, this is one of my favorite uh, sections. And the reason why I, this, especially this little graphic right here, uh, and, and the reason why I got so excited about it is because like it, it opened up my eyes to what like could be a very, very competitive world in the world of staking pools, probably both on the centralized and decentralized uh, uh, ends of the spectrum. They're all, pro- all probably competing on the same few things. And it's basically all competing for like ETH deposits into my staking pool. But where like where we are eliminating uh, mining pools, we are creating the possibility of staking pools, right? And that can be decentralized or centralized. But there, but no matter what, like no matter what characteristics or the parameters of how these de- uh, uh, staking pools come to be, they're going to be competing on a say on the same few things. One of them is uptime. How how does a pool incentivize maximum uptime from its validators? Because that's going to create the strongest amount of ROI in the derivative token that each staking pool is going to inevitably issue. Right? Like you deposit your thirty two ETH, you get thirty two de- like staked ETH. Uh, derivative tokens. Uh, that's the, one of the articles that you guys have cited here from from Dan Elitzer. Um and so like I'm really bullish on like this competition to be the best staking pool system to uh, really add overall to Ethereum's security because it's really amping up the incentives to have strong uptimes to, to to be staking as much ETH as possible, and they're going to be fighting for generating liquidity on their staked ETH derivative token. So like, you, like you, hear, you heard it here first. Yield farming on staked ETH derivative tokens is totally going to be a thing. Like you are going to be, com- people are going to be compensated for providing liquidity for like, whether it's like our ETH for the Rocket Pool token or, or coin US or ETH C for the Coinbase token. I don't know. You're going to get rewards for providing liquidity between staking pools and, and Ether. And that, and that was kind of like my big takeaway from, from this part of the section. And so uh, I thought that this, this part was, was really in, ingenious and, and this graphic especially was a, a nice add to the piece as a whole. Yeah. You know what this made me think of too, just to add to what David was saying is basically like, you know, the stablecoin wars that we have, Yeah. like we're going to have the ETH staking wars in a big yeah. way. Right. So ether is already the most liquid asset on Ethereum staked ether is going to be the second most <laughs> liquid asset. Right. But staked ether will have all of these different flavors. Yeah. Right. So there's not like just one US dollar on Ethereum. There's USDC and there's, you know, Tether and there's DAI and all of these things. And that range will be from centralized to decentralized. And then because of like Dan Elitzer, who you sourced here, superfluid collateral, right? We get to mix and match all these things too. So we could create some basket of, you know, centralized 
um, staked ETH if we want. And it's a blend of Binance and Coinbase and Not Kraken, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we could have a, like, cause one, one dimension, David, that, that um, you know, you mentioned uptime, but another dimension that's probably going to be important is the uh, degree of, of trustlessness of the asset itself, right? So we talk a lot about uh, economic bandwidth and in particular trustless economic bandwidth. Well, like, and you guys cited the protocol sync thesis. Thank you, by the way, we're propagating that. Um, <laughs> like the protocol sync thesis would predict that DeFi is going to want to build on the most trustless form of, of staked ETH in the Ethereum ecosystem too. So rather than build on Binance's version of ETH, right? That is completely custodial stake teeth. Maybe you want rocket pool because that is more decentralized or maybe you want this blend of decentralized. Anyway, we could go down the rabbit hole here, but you guys have unlocked something, I think, in both of our minds with respect to how the future could, could pan out with all of these ether bonds that are floating around. And it's super exciting to think about. Yeah, honestly, I think both of you guys nailed it. I think when we were researching this, this was probably one of the most surprising things when I was like, when we were, we were looking through it because of how little it has been, has been discussed. So obviously like Dan had that, that great article on the, the death of Ethereum, but outside of that, I, it just didn't seem like there was an equal amount of coverage for how big an opportunity this uh, eat derivative space space is. And yeah, I think there's going to be kind of like you said, there's going to be, like incentivized pools between like ETH and derivative ETH to build liquidity between those those two. There's going to be yield farming opportunities with derivative ETH. There's going to be the opportunity to like lend it to lend and borrow derivative ETH, like use it as collateral to mint die, like all these different things. There's also going to be like you know structured products that will probably be built packaging these different derivative ETH together. Uh, it's really like I think the possibilities are really endless. I mean, there there probably be like you know opportunities for you to like swap your variable yields in uh, your state deed for like a fixed one. Uh, That's interesting. So, so there's like a whole ton of, you know, products that I, you know, imagine will be built using this derivative ETH as a, as a primitive. And I think they'll be very popular because you know, no one wants, I mean, everyone would prefer liquidity over illiquidity. And this is probably going to be the way it happens when there's no uh, withdrawals for your state deed. Well, Ryan, Wilson, I really appreciate you guys coming on and talking about the Mizari report. Ryan, I'm looking forward to talking to you tomorrow at the Mizari, uh, Mizari conference online as well. Yeah, no, look, looking forward to it. So you guys have done a fantastic job with this report. Bankless Nation, this is the report that you send to your financially minded friends who have not yet got into crypto. This is the report that you send to your friends and family if they're trying to learn about Ethereum. Uh, Ryan and Wilson here have done a bang up job, really just going into every single nook and cranny of Ethereum subject matter and getting it relayed into this report. So tip of the hat for really pushing the narrative forward, pushing why we're doing this and pushing why Ethereum. Uh, really, really appreciate your guys' work. Yeah, seriously, guys, thanks for getting it right. Thank you. <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, thanks, thanks for having us on. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I really, really appreciate it. Absolutely, guys. Take care. Thanks a lot.
All right, Bankless Nation, we're going to turn to sponsors really quick uh, just to talk. Uh, and then afterwards, me and Ryan are going to talk about just, you know, ETH2's launch. So we're going to reflect on that a little bit. So stay tuned as we get through some of our uh, fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Hey guys, the next sponsor is Ledger and Ledger is running a 40% off Black Friday week sale. So if you haven't gotten your Ledger yet, you are in luck. For the week of the 23rd through the 30th, you can get 40% off of all Ledgers on the Ledger website. So if you are still using a hot wallet or you're just looking to get a backup, maybe for a multi-sig or just for some more redundancy, now is the time to go get that ledger. There's a link in the show notes that can get you that 40% off Black Friday deal. If you want to live a bankless life, you need to get a hardware wallet. There is no alternative for storing your crypto in a self-sovereign fashion. That's why I have four ledgers that I use to manage my different crypto assets using the Ledger Live account as well. Ledger Live is like your home base for managing your Ethereum, DeFi, and crypto accounts. It does a really good job of aggregating all of your different Ethereum wallets if you are the type of person that uses more than one, but you can also add other cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Cosmos or whatever your preferred blockchain is. And then it will display an aggregate portfolio of all your accounts at the main page. One thing that Ledger is doing a really good job of is enabling all of the money verbs that me and Ryan talk about with the Bankless Skill Cube enabled in the Ledger Live app. So right now in the Ledger Live app, you can buy, sell, lend, swap, and stake your crypto assets, which is doing a really good job of fulfilling all of the money verbs in the Bankless Skill Cube. Something that's new to Ledger Live is Ledger Swap, where you can swap assets one for another directly inside the Ledger Live application, ensuring trustlessness in your financial activity on Ethereum and on Bitcoin. If you want to learn more about what you can do with a Ledger, go to the blog post, The Power of Ledger Live on the Ledger website, where they share some of the more advanced things that you can do with your Ledger that you might not have known about. There's a link in the show notes that will take you to the Ledger shop where you can get your preferred Ledger hardware wallets. I personally like the Ledger Nano X, but I also have both. They're both great options. When you own a Ledger, you own your own assets in the way that they have been designed to be held by the user and the user alone. So go get your Ledger today to make sure that you are as self-sovereign as possible. The Bankless State of the Nations are brought to you by Wiren. Wiren is DeFi's first self-building community-run project, which I just get really, really excited about. Wiren is a system that seeks out yield in DeFi, and it does that in a number of different ways. Well, a very aggressive way is with the vaults, where you can deposit your preferred asset of choice, and different DeFi experts will come in and generate a strategy for what to do with your deposited token, right? And so it'll go find ways to get yield in that deposited token in DeFi. For those who want to just earn yield on their stable coins, the earn system is for you, where you can deposit your preferred stable coin and Wiren will go and figure out which money market on DeFi and DeFi is producing the best interest rate, whether it's DYDX, it's Compound or Aave. It, it looks around DeFi to see where the yield is coming from and it directs stable coins automatically so you don't have to. Check them out at yearn.finance to get started and also check out the stats page to see what other people are doing as well. Bankless Nation, we are back from the sponsors. Uh, David, that was fantastic. Like I felt like Watkins and Wilson are kindred spirits. Maybe they're the, the Ryan and David of Masari. <laughs> well, one so. of them is literally Ryan, yeah. <laughs> so. Well, okay, literally. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, 
it was the first time, to be honest, I talked to analysts, crypto analysts specifically, yeah, mm-hmm. who actually like got it, mm-hmm. right? Like they totally understood and they, um, I don't know, there's I just nothing, nothing I disagreed with in that it, you know, so like, what was your take on, on that report? Is this the one that gets in, in into institutions? Did we just, did we just uh, advance a step on the Ethereum education and Ethereum na- narrative side? Yeah, you know, I, I think we did. And a, a lot of what was included in that report was like stuff that you and me have been chewing on, like since 20, 18 i think like ryan even before we knew each other like i think the, the first time we actually like talked uh we just hopped into a zoom just to share ideas about stuff right and i don't think we you and me at the time didn't really have the words to, that we use now to communicate things of that nature but like we talked about like other teams that were trying to get to ethereum 2.0 before the actual ethereum team could and things of this nature but like i think the beginning of that talk that we had in 2018 was like talking about things like credible neutrality talking about things about the importance of ether as an asset ether as a money uh defining ether and, and like narratives and it, it, that that conversation that we had like like over two and a half years ago I think has turned into some of these like uh, some of just the the canon truth about what Ether the asset is and what Ethereum the platform is, and so it's taken like two, three long, long years for that to finally like bubble up to the surface and get into something that's uh, that's like a like a, a legitimate institutional report coming out of Misari. So it's not like Rome was built in a day. Like we've been hammering some of these points for years now. Uh, and it's finally kind of starting to like rise up to the top and be put into like an actual fantastic PDF by the Mazari team. Yeah, it's it's super cool to see that happen. And a lot of like, so uh, sometimes with with the bankless thesis and bankless ideas, like the, the ideas are uh, are novel and new. But a lot of times, like what we're doing is is basically what they did, which is we're we're synthesizing things that we see in in the community and ideas and posts that that people like Vitalik write or like that, um, you know, like synthesizing the, the social sentiment and trying to put that into metaphors and, and words and easy to understand models. And this just felt like the next extension of that is basically like, um, you know, we have a reach with bankless, but that reach is also, also limited. I mean, people who aren't on YouTube, people who don't do podcasts, people who don't like newsletters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, we, we struggle to reach everybody. Right. So th- the more people that we have talking about this narrative, mm-hmm. right? Like the better. So we're just seeing it spread. And I think part of this is like the bankless community, quite frankly, because um, like the bankless community helps get guests on our shows. The bankless community helps spread like the, the narratives and the memes mm-hmm. and helps really, really support us. So what this is, is it's the next iteration of, the social layer that we talk about so much, which of us like it rests on very simple models or like as we call them memes. And those memes like propagate up the stack. And pretty soon, the next level after I'm a sorry, right? This is now mainstream crypto. So like we're this, we're this like niche, <laughs> right? And then we got mainstream crypto. And the next level is Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. and CNBC, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that happens next year or if that happens maybe 2022, but I'm not going to be surprised, David, if in a few years, everybody, the the common way to think about ether as an asset is, oh, it's like an internet bond. It's like a digital bond. 
Mm-hmm. It's like Bitcoin is, it's just digital gold, right? right? Like B- Bitcoin propagated its narrative in the exact same way. So Absolutely. super exciting to start seeing that. Yeah. One thing that I think really excites me about the future is, is like to, to me and to, to you and to, to the Ethereum culture and community, like Ethereum is inherently good. It's a good thing. Right. It's a, it's a maybe it's a neutral good, lawful good. Or I don't know. But it is good. Right. And one of the reasons why it is good is the protocol sync thesis, like things that are good incredibly neutral, like balanced, fall down to the bottom of the protocol sink. And this is something that they cited in their report. They talked about how like uh, the the credible neutrality of a protocol makes it more socially scalable to the whole world. That's something that they cited in their report. And if this Mazari report lands on the desk of some Wall Street individual, there's a link between Wall Street and the protocol sink thesis. And the protocol, what inherently the protocol sink thesis is, is the promotion of global public goods, public financial internet-based infrastructure that are credibly neutral, that reach out to the whole entire world. And all of a sudden, so to me, what Ethereum does is all of a sudden there's generating alignment between somebody as far away from, from alignment as Wall Street to the creation of global financial public good infrastructure on the internet. And that's the power of Ethereum. It's linking people on Wall Street to to open permissionless protocols that just are going to better everyone's lives. And so to, to me, it's just very validating of like why, why we are here in this space. Cause like it's to do good and, and we have the path to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, not only the path to do that too, right? So the, the second piece, maybe we could talk about this morning and the launch of ETH 2.0, right? So I think partially for, for a while, it's felt like we've been prophets in the wilderness and no one's listening because everyone's like, yeah, like, sure. Tell us when ETH staking ships, right. like tell us when, you know, proof of work and staking merge into one chain right. and ether issuance drops down to less than 1%, right? Then maybe we'll believe you, right? right. And our, our take on that, I think David is like, if you wait for all of these things to happen, like, let's say, let's take it to the extreme. Let's say you wait until Ethereum is the globally adopted financial, permissionless financial infrastructure for the world. It's the internet of money, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe that happens in the next decade, maybe it takes longer, maybe it doesn't happen. But if you wait until that happens for the evidence, you're going to be buying ETH at 50K an ETH, yeah. right? From like, me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I might not sell. I might be just staking. Right. Right. Like, uh, so if part part of this, I think, is where, where I was getting to full circle is the message starts to have more credibility mm-hmm. when some of these things are actively shipping. Mm-hmm. And now that we have ETH2 shipping, as we witnessed this morning, it was basically like the launch could not have gone any better, yep. right? Stuff can still happen in the future. We're talking to Lucas, uh, Lucas Campbell on the Bankless team, and he was like, guys, something bad's going to happen at some point in time over the next year, right? Um, like, probably this is this is still mm-hmm. a uh, an early mm-hmm. uh, kind of network. There, there could be some bumps along the road, but the launch went super smoothly. And the, the sentiment, the narrative over the past two years has been ETH2 will never launch and none of these things will happen or come to fruition. And I think when reality starts to, to kick in and things are shipping, it just shakes. It shakes right. that that narrative. Right. Um, maybe it's no accident that I feel like it does. Is it just me, or it feels like on, on crypto Twitter at least, there's a lot of angry Bitcoin maximalists yep. 
unhinged that, <laughs> maximalist. I don't know. It just seems like that. They're they're throwing these like red herrings about um, mm-hmm. if if you do something with ether, it's going to be like a taxable event. Right. Um, the IRS is going to bring Ethereum down. Right. It's like and grasping it, at straws, man. It just feel it just feels like maybe it's a reaction to wow. Ethereum is actually shipping. That thing that mm-hmm. we said would never happen is actually happening. Right. By the way, I'm looking at myself. Does it look like I'm wearing lipstick? Like my lips are super red, dude. Uh, yeah, you look- I don't know if you got a weird filter or what. <laughs> you got the pretty filter on. <laughs> I'm not wearing lipstick, guys, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, so like the, the funny thing about like Bitcoiner narratives is like they, the Bitcoiner narratives have kind of painted themselves, to, themselves into a corner where they're actually out of control of some particular things that could like pull out all the Jenga blocks from the tower. Like a decent amount of Bitcoiner narrative is that proof of stake can't work. A decent amount of Bitcoiner narrative is that Ethereum can't ship. A decent amount of Bitcoiner narrative is that you don't scale a blockchain. If all of those things and others like turn out to be not true and instead like actually plausible, then like one by one, you're taking ammo out of the tool belt of, you know, of, of a community that is just frankly obsessed with making sure that Bitcoin is the only blockchain that the crypto economic blockchain world ever produces. To be clear, when you talk about Bitcoin, like thinking you're talking about maximalists, right? There are so many Bitcoin, there are so many Bitcoiners and and at some level, maybe this is the more silent majority who like they hold ether too. Mm -hmm. They they want any bankless system Mm -hmm. to to succeed, but there are definitely many maximalists who who think of things in just binary, like either Bitcoin wins Mm -hmm. uh, or Bitcoin has to win and everything else has to, has to lose. so yeah, I, I, anyway, successful launch this morning. How, so how are you feeling about things at this, at this moment? You're like, we are December, 2020, mm-hmm. we're getting ready to get, go into 2021. How are you feeling on this day, December in December in 2020 about just, I guess your crypto journey in the yeah, future right. of Ethereum, future of Bitcoin. Yeah. It, it, I feel pretty split because one part of me is like, and especially at the same time, the rise from Ether price going from like 300 to 600 and also the launch of Ethereum uh, phase zero stakings, like, yeah, like, duh, like, duh, it's here. <laughs> like, we've we've told you it's been coming. Like, yes, I've, I've seen it coming and now it's here. Like, now today's the day. It's like, why my birthday doesn't surprise me every single year when it comes around either. <laughs> like, some of these things are just like expected. And so like, yeah. yeah, maybe to the outside world, like this is like, oh, like Ethereum 2 is actually shipped. But but to me, it's like, well, some of these things are just obvious. Like, yeah, Ethereum 2 shipped today. Like, you know, cool. But also Ethereum's becoming ready for the world and the world is becoming more and more ready to accept Ethereum. And so like, this is why Ethereum scaling is so important is because we've been chanting this, beating this drum on the Bankless Pod. Ethereum is a platform for trustless institutions and the institutions of the legacy world are breaking down, right? And so we need to find different ways to produce new institutions on Ethereum. And I think, that, and as Ethereum is becoming more ready for the world, the world is becoming more ready for Ethereum. And so at the same time, while I see like, you know, oh, phase zero launch, like, yay, like, cool, we did it. Like today's the day. And maybe, maybe I'm not as excited as other people just because like I kind of saw it coming. At the same time, I'm so incredibly like optimistic as to like this arc that is seemingly like getting really, really close to being complete that is going to save a lot of people from a lot of suffering in the world. Does it feel like things are starting to happen faster now? 
things like are happening velocity really fast. has increased time it, moves it's accelerating really quickly right now like never mind 24 hours it's 24 hours or units of time of units of time more progress is happening per unit of time and therefore it feels like we're moving forward through time at a faster tick rate absolutely it, it, um, at some level it just feels like the decade could be over in a you know snap of the fingers oh God. right and just <laughs> Don't well, tell, don't tell me <laughs> I, I don't mean to get existential on you, but like, I just feel like um, yeah, velocity is increasing mm -hmm. in this space. Um, over the past, I don't know, year and a half, two years, it's mm -hmm. really, it's really picked up. And mm -hmm. I, I have been frankly blown away with even the velocity of some projects on uh, Ethereum DeFi projects that start out so small, mm -hmm. and suddenly, you like, you wake up a few months later. And they're doing billions of dollars in transactions and value, right? And like, I'm wondering what the next phase of this looks like because if uh, if it continues to grow, right, right. Um, it's going to start consuming parts of the mainstream world. Right? right. Right now, we are still in this this niche where the crypto is weird and like you can't talk to anyone about DeFi and mm -hmm. no one really knows what Uniswap is, right? And there's maybe a million people using this. Um, but like last year at this time, there was less than 100,000 people right. using this. Yeah. So if you think about like just the, the Bill Gates quote, is, uh, people don't really think in like log scale, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and you think about log scale, I mean, where are we going to be in mm -hmm. five years from now, mm -hmm. right? Um, it could be pretty pretty incredible the, the the bill gates quote uh, that i know is that you overestimate what you can do in two years and you underestimate what you can do in 10 years yeah and so like i always anchor my perception onto 2017 because that's when i got into crypto right and it's like all right 2017 i thought like all of the world was going to be crypto enabled by like the next year like it was going to be 2018 <laughs> and like oh the world just runs on crypto and that was just like my hair brains like mania mind that that i had at the time and so like moving moving forward, moving into Bill Gates's quote, like we overestimate what we can do in two years. Okay, well that was 2019. And then, and then we underestimate what we can do in 10 years, right? And so now we're at like three and a half years past uh, 2017 when I got into, got into the world of crypto. And so now it feels like we're actually at the meeting point where like what gets developed in the next year actually starts to exceed my expectations of what I could have envisioned back in 2017. And it doesn't stop there. It just like keeps on going. It just keeps on going. Uh, and I, I, again, there's just an inherent demand for a platform like Ether, right? But like Ethereum, like think of all the jobs that Ethereum is going to create in a world where jobs are extremely hard to find. Like just any sort of DeFi protocol or platform or company is going to be hiring in the next like in the next two to three to four years. And there's also going to be more of them. Like a lot of economic activity is going to be put onto the Ethereum, but also generative outside of Ethereum as well. Like it's just going to be it's just going to be the savior of the world. It's going to save the whole world. <laughs> well, David, chances are your kids may work for a DAO or for a protocol mm -hmm. rather than a company. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the tra trajectory we're on. Yeah. Um, Speaking of, of kids, not my kids, but my sister is due in February and I just bought a B is for a Buffacorn book from John Poller, who runs wow. the Youth Denver. Uh, and so just FYI, for any any other families that are having COVID babies, like my sister, get the B is for <laughs> Buffacorn book because it's a great children's book to indoctrinate your kids with. <laughs> All right. Well, we should include that in the show notes. All right, David, we should uh, maybe wrap it up. This has been, yeah, this has been fantastic. Okay. Uh, 
Bankless, Bankless Nation, thanks for hanging with us on the State of the Nation extra long, but today is an extra special day with the ETH2 launch and this fantastic report from Masari. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Of course, none of this was financial advice. ETH is risky, so is Bitcoin, so is DeFi. Everything we talk about is relatively risky, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the Bankless journey. Thanks a lot.